Well, it might not seem heaps obvious uh, from our very uh, short Bible reading how intimidating the book of Zechariah is, but uh, if during the, one of the midweek Bible studies you looked at the Bible Project video or uh, you see the Kids Church big poster video, the overview of the book, or if you spend an hour just reading the book of Zechariah from beginning to end, you'll realise how intimidating it is. And the obvious question then is why? <laughs> why would we be looking at such a book? And uh, I guess the why question in terms of what we're doing here as God's people operates on many levels. The very first why question is why are we looking at the Bible at all? Uh, I guess there are seemingly plenty of other helpful uh, books and podcasts and research papers and input that we could be having that sort of shapes us. But at a very top level, why we look at the God's word is that we, re- we believe that God has spoken through it. The God of the universe has revealed himself and his purposes and his plans through his word. Through his word, we see God clearly and personally. He himself has inspired this very word. That's why week by week, we open up God's word. The next level of the why question is when we get to the bits of the Bible that don't particularly seem connected with the central message of the Bible. The bits of the Bible that are difficult to understand, where they seem very focused on details in a specific point in history that seems to have little connection to our life now. And this is where Zechariah hits us at the Y level. (laughs) There's a range of dramatic images throughout the book. There's a whole range of language and metaphors that seem difficult to understand There's lots of talk about God's people reconstructing the temple, about rituals that the priesthood needs to reinstate. If you are able to grab the main point of Zechariah, it it seems quite disconnected at some level from the main message of the Bible. But whilst the book of Zechariah is a difficult one to navigate and it does sort of accentuate this, why are we doing this mindset? The importance of Zechariah is clear. In the New Testament, it's either quoted to, alluded to, or paralleled 71 times. And God's message through Zechariah is important in understanding God's overall purposes and plans for this world. So that's why we're spending time in Zechariah. It is clearly an important part of God's word. And so, as we seek to not only hear it, but understand it, what we're going to try and do is to sort of see the connections that this revelation has to our life and our faith in the God who's authored it. So that's why we're spending time in Zechariah. The next big question is, what is going on in the book of Zechariah? Uh, Well, let's just try and firstly get a historical parameters as to where we are and what's going on. Zechariah is in this uh, key part of Israel's history where they've been conquered by the Babylonians back in 586 BC. This was a time when God's people had lost everything. God had withdrawn himself from his people. Jerusalem, their city, was abandoned, destroyed. The temple demolished and the priesthood and the monarchy were deported. This is a very low point in God's people's people's history because they're removed from the realisation of his promises. 
This destruction and exile, though, was part of God's plan. It was a response to their disobedience. It was a judgment against their rebellion. But although the prophets leading up to the exile predicted that this was going to happen, their actions were going to have consequences, even before the exile, there were glimmers of hope. There was a sense that God had restoration as part of his plan. And so some of the big prophets, just big because they've written big books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, in those prophecies were promises that despite upcoming judgment, there would also be future restoration. There was this hope of returning to the land the city and the temple being rebuilt, the priesthood being recommissioned, the kingship being reinstalled. So having endured quite a long exile, cling to perhaps to these promises of God that punishment wouldn't be forever, in 539 BC, the Persians, another empire, conquered the Babylonians. And the Persians, who were now ruling, they issued a decree that offered some hope the Jews could return to Jerusalem. And so returning back to their homeland, there were some expectations that things were on the improve. But what we see from the bits of the Bible that describe this time is that it's really characterised by unrealised expectations. Zechariah is written as some of God's people have returned to the land, but what they've returned to is a city in tatters. And so Zechariah sort of parallels a little bit with Haggai and we start to see some of the the issues that were experienced by God's people here. But the main overarching picture is a picture of struggle. Although they've been away and they've returned home, they haven't turned to the renovated house. They've returned to the derelict house, the fixer-upper, you know, the still $2 million house in the inner west that's just uninhabitable. And so Zechariah comes in about 520 BC, about 20 years after some of God's people have come back to the land. And what we see in verse 1 is that this point in history isn't ideal for God's people. If you have a look at verse 1 there, we see that in the eighth month of the second year of Darius. And now when the referencing of time is in connection to a non-Israelite king, this is a stark reminder for God's people that things aren't right. Jerusalem is still in ruins. There's no city walls to protect from invasion. There's no palace. There's no king. There's no temple. And whilst there are some glimmers of renewal because they're back in the land, the overriding experience is disappointment. And now for those who sort of knew the details of the promises of God, there were some still reasons for hope. Jeremiah, one of the previous prophets, had predicted that the judgment would only be for 70 years. And so getting to the near, near the end of that 70-year period, there was hope that there might be a new season on the horizon, that there might be an opportunity for real change. And so throughout Zechariah, when there's references to how they to rebuild the temple and to reinstate the priesthood, we need to see this as 
signs of hope for God's people that things are moving forward. But it's a tiring and exhausting season that Zechariah speaks to. A time when God's people are filled with unmet expectations and real disappointment. And that's something we can relate to, isn't it? Fatigue, unmet expectations, disappointment. And so the messenger that God brings is this guy, Zechariah, which we see in verse 1, the connections of Berechiah and Idu show that he's sort of from this priestly heritage, Nehemiah, uh, which gives a more historical perspective of what was happening at this time, sort of gives us an insight that Zechariah has a priestly heritage, but here he's commissioned as a prophet. And so the word of God comes through Zechariah, and we see in verse 2 that God's immediate word is a word about the past. God wants to reference the actions of Israel's ancestors. Here in verse 2, he's referencing the generation who caused the exile, a generation who were characterised by immoral behaviour and an idolatrous attitude, a generation who were unwilling to repent. And we read here in verse 2 that the ancestors of Israel stoked God's anger. God's people had been exiled because God's righteous and warranted anger against sin had brought about that. God's anger, which is measured against sin and injustice, but it's intense. You see there, the Lord was very angry. It's literally the Lord was wroth, wroth. It's like when someone says, I'm just so mad. You know, that's so, it just sort of emphasises things. This generation, the ancestors, their rebellion against God and their unwillingness to repent had brought about the exile. And so the current people's disappointing and destitute experience is a result of this previous generation's actions. And so I think a helpful point for us to reflect on here is, again, that actions have consequences. Individually and communally. You see, God's people as a collective had been set apart. They'd been rescued and delivered into the land to, to be blessed and to be a blessing. But their rejection of the God who'd given them this has resulted in the outworking of exile and judgment and the devastation that the following generation had experienced. And so God's anger here was against the sin of his people. And it's important for us to stop and reflect on the fact that sin cannot be separated from the person who sins. To sin is to be a sinner. To be seen as a sinner and to be treated as a sinner. The only way to be seen differently than a sinner is to have your sin dealt with. 
And no matter how much we would like to, we can't separate ourselves from our sin. It's tempting, isn't it, to try and do that? We say, I didn't mean it. It was just a bad decision. I really made a mistake. I didn't realise it was that bad. I don't really see the problem with how I've behaved. There's a great temptation to absolve ourselves of responsibility for our actions, to try and convince ourselves that our actions are disconnected from ourselves. It's like when you see someone get upset at another person for doing something that they themselves do. Like if you're driving with someone and they get cut off and they're like really angry, how could that person do that? And then, you know, 10 minutes later, they sort of take the inside lane down the left and then cut themselves back in. And you're like, isn't that just the same thing that you just got angry for? Or, or the person who's gossiping about someone who's being such a gossip. And you're like, isn't this just the same action? Or perhaps even most confronting when you're filled with anger towards your kid and they're behaving just the very way that you do. It's tempting for all of us to try and separate ourselves from our sin. But the reality is we can't separate ourselves from our sin. The only hope is that the consequences of our sin would be satisfied and dealt with and absorbed by someone else. And so the initial word from God through Zechariah is that his anger had come against the sin of this generation's ancestors. Actions have consequences and this initial experience, this whole period in exile is reaping the consequences of sin. But following this initial reminder, we see from verse 3 a wonderful invitation. Return to me and I'll return to you. It's an invitation that's really at the heart of the whole book. It's a relational and reciprocal invitation. This is the heartbeat of God for his people. Return to me and I'll return to you. Now, throughout Zechariah, there's a few levels of returning. There's the broad and immediate invitation for those who have yet returned physically to Jerusalem to come and return. But for those who are already there in Zechariah's midst, there's sort of a spiritual returning. This return is literally a repenting, a turning around, a reorienting. And so it's an invitation to not be like the ancestors whose actions had brought about this experience of exile. Your ancestors who didn't return, who didn't repent, who didn't turn their ways. He's inviting this new generation to live with an orientation of returning to the Lord, giving their heart to him, giving their ways to him. And it's this invitation to return that characterises the whole book of Zechariah. It's both spatial and relational, that God would return to dwell with his people and God's people would return their hearts to him. It's, 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 it's not sort of a, a separated couple who decide to live under one roof for the sake of the kids 
or to sort of ease the financial pressure. It's not just about God dwelling in the same space as his people, but being affectionately sort of distant. No, no, no. It's this invitation to be reunited and to be re-knit as a stronger bond that had ever existed. And so I think in verse 6, we see the response of that generation to the invitation. Then they repented and said, The Lord has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined us to do. I think verse 6 is a picture of what it means to return. An acknowledgement of God's justice against sin. A willingness to take responsibility for actions and their consequences and a surrendering. A surrendering to God that he is the one suitable to deal with sin. And so I think that verse 6 sort of gives this description of how Zechariah's cohort respond to the message that was given in verse 3. And so the question for us is, why does this matter? (laughs) What difference do these six verses make to our life? Well, I think as we understand this part of God's word and where it fits, we need to sort of make some connections. Similar to Zechariah's cohort, who had received promises that weren't yet realised, we too live in a gap. We live in a gap between the promises that God has made and them being ultimately fulfilled. It's a gap when our present reality isn't what we'd like it to be, where our reality is usually below our expectations, uh, a gap where life is often hard and it's easy to be disheartened. But we need to remember where we fit within God's plan. And so the kids have been looking at this big overview of the Bible. You'll see the massive poster in the kitchen. And sort of down the bottom there with those two seals, Zechariah there is placed at the very end of the Old Testament as God's people have returned to the land following exile to Babylon. But the connection for us is that we also live in this gap. This time waiting for Jesus to return and to the new creation to be installed. And so we live in this part of God's history where the consequences for sin and death have been met through the death of Jesus. Jesus' invitation is to deal with the consequences of our sin. So that we who are sinners because we sin can also be declared saints. Because as we trust in Jesus' death on our behalf, that his death absorbed the punishment for our sin, that we can stand right with God. And so we live with this posture of responding to God's invitation. Return to me and I'll return to you. (laughs) Return to me, I've given you an identity as members of my household. And so this sort of time that we live in is often referred to by Christians as uh, the last days or the thing of the last things. It's this this word eschatology, and uh, the kids are are working out a little song with it. 
about the eschatological tension, and they'll hopefully um, bring that to us. But it's this idea of now and not yet. And so we live in an age when invitation for relationship with God is constantly offered. And for us to acknowledge that invitation, we live by trust. To trust in the certainty of King Jesus and what he has secured now. In, in the midst of our own sin, trusting the certainty of forgiveness that is found in his name. In those moments where God feels distance, trusting in the promise that we are in a right and real relationship with him. And as we live in a world that is divided, that is at war with each other, it's trusting in the kingdom that is not yet realised, but will be completed at Jesus' return. To live in the gap is to live trusting in God's ability to complete what he starts. It's a bit like trusting a builder to deliver what they promise. My sister recently had her house knocked down by builders. It was literally falling apart anyway. But sort of once the demolition occurred, there was a new level of trust that she had to give to the builder (laughs) because no matter how unsatisfactory the previous structure was, they could still inhabit it. When it was flawed, totally vulnerable. Now, sure, her her husband is a lawyer, so the the contract was iron-tight and they'd done their due diligence. This builder had a decent reputation. But really, until that house is rebuilt, there's a real level of trust. And so, too, we live in an age where trust is required. Is this kingdom that Jesus has talked about actually going to come to realisation? Well, as we... Read the Google reviews for God to sort of see how he has delivered on his promises in the past. We can take great comfort as we trust that God has made an iron-tight agreement, an unconditional covenant, that he will initiate a work that will last forever. And so we live in the age where we are to trust. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that we can't see everything that's happening. We can't see that everything God's doing in us, things where he's shaping our character and our understanding of him, it means that there are variables that are out of our control. It it means that we will make plans where there are many components that are unclear. To live in this gap is receiving the invitation to trust God with things and knowing that you won't know the right decision to make all the time. There'll be scenarios that you are placed in that you'll feel inadequate to navigate. All of these experiences are opportunities to trust in the one who's promised But living in the gap is also living, receiving the invitation to learn. Look at verse 4. Do not be like your ancestors. God's word through Zechariah for the people is to learn from the past. 
Learn from the mistakes of your ancestors who indulged in evil rather than turning from it. Now, now we know that history often repeats. It's helpful to see where others have failed. It does become a warning. It can become an inspiration to be different, to see what to avoid. But there's also an invitation to learn from our own failings, to see where our focus has moved elsewhere, that rather than trusting in God, we have pursued comfort now. Rather than surrendering uncertainties to him, we seek to control all matters. You see, the posture of living in the gap is a posture of humility. Humility that genuinely seeks to be a learner. A humility to not be content with the status quo of where you're at. Who's not content to just sort of make excuses for your actions based on, oh, it's just my preference, just my character. Humility desires change. And what we see here at the end of verse 4 is how we learn is by listening to God. Living with a heart that desires to pay attention to him. Listening, paying attention. Is that a posture you have? Is that our heart as a people who are following Jesus? If someone was to follow each of us around all for a month, where would the description of they are a people who listen to God, where, where would that rank on the things that they just observe in our life? Or what are the evidences that would be apparent that we are people who pay attention to God? Would it be observable in the way that we relate to our friends? Could it be seen in the way that we spend our time and where we give our best effort? We often talk about a good learner is to be a sponge and what a delight it is to have a new colleague in the organisation who's eager to listen. You know, not sort of dismissive or arrogant or not distracted by other things, but humble and bold enough to ask questions, uh, uh, humble enough to admit ignorance, but then switched on enough to really hear the information and try and put it into practice. Is that us as followers of Jesus? Isn't it so easy to be dismissive, to think, yeah, I've heard it all before? Isn't it so easy to be distracted? We're just sort of grabbing sound bites from anywhere and everywhere else, looking for sort of little quick life hacks that'll just sort of make us feel like we're progressing, that we're not really paying attention to the voice that is restoring us to something that will last. Living in this gap until Jesus' return is receiving the invitation to be learners. To admit we haven't arrived. To be eager and attentive to God's word. To, to live with this, this heartbeat of the invitation, return to me and I'll return to you. You see, you see a key part of waiting for Jesus' return is this, this idea of returning. 
of turning back to him, of repenting for where our focus has drifted, where our ears have been attentive. To return to God is seen both in our attitude and our actions. It's not just about living in the right way, but it's about living in a close proximity to God. And so to live in the gap is to live a life returning to God, acknowledging that we've wandered in our focus and in our attitudes, acknowledging that we have given up, that we've been unbelieving, but trusting again that God has this invitation for us to return to him and that he will renew and restore us. As we live in the gap, returning to the God who has set a future that will be full restoration, we navigate the disappointments that we face, knowing that there is renewal on the horizon. And in the midst of hardness, and despair, there's just a greater appreciation for the future invitation that we've been given. And and so that's why our our gathering each week is such a, a strong manifestation of returning, returning to have a right focus, turning from our idols that are so subtle and consuming in our lives to come and listen and pay attention, to return to God from our comfortable pace of life and our nicely controlled schedules, to listen to the voice that gives life, returning as God's people so that our motive would be shaped, that our attitude would be set right and that our actions would be in accordance with his plan. To live in this gap before Jesus' return is to live the heartbeat of repentance, returning to him, trusting that he who has began a good work will complete it to the end. Now, over the next six weeks, there'll be some more specifics of, of what that might look like in our lives and as a community. But for now, let's vet, meditate on this